Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're talking about the versatile artist Joe Mora, who worked across many mediums, including books and maps, and dedicated much of his work to the American West, and particularly California. Joseph Jacinto Mora was born in Uruguay in 1876 and died in 1947 in California. He was a cartoonist, a sculptor, a painter, a photographer, an author and an illustrator. His career began on the East Coast, drawing illustrations and cartoons for Boston newspapers. But he was drawn West. Mora travelled and lived in Arizona and California where he recorded, through his art, the lives of the Hopi and Navajo Native Americans. He grew to understand cowboy culture firsthand by extensively traveling through California on horseback on his own. As his career blossomed, his sculptures appeared throughout California, including in the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And he also created a memorial to the author and poet Bret Hart at the Bohemian Club, also in San Francisco. Mora illustrated books, created murals and maps of the West. To learn more about Joe Mora, I'm joined by Peter Hiller, who is the collection curator for the Joe Mora Trust and author of The Life and Times of Joe Mora, Iconic Artist of the American West, a book published in 2019 by the Book Club of California. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Richard. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, my first question is uh, an easy one for you. Why is Joe Mara's work so special? Well, from my perspective, it's uh, his work consistently exudes a beautiful aesthetic. Uh, it doesn't matter if he's working in bronze, crafting sculptures, or if he's illustrating books, or if he's doing watercolors of Hopi Kachina figures, the, the detail, the fine line, the quality of his work is consistently appealing. And I think that that's, um, that's certainly what attracted me to his work. And I've consistently found it engaging for around 25 years now. So I first encountered Mora when I listened to a, a webinar that you did with the Book Club of California. Now, for the benefit of the listeners, how would you describe his style, or perhaps I should say styles? Well, it, that's an intriguing and interesting question. And I would, the word that comes to mind for me is classical. Uh, I think he somehow, he lived through some of the most dramatic changes in art history, at least in Western art history. He lived through Cubism, he lived through Surrealism, and I know for a fact he was aware of those trends in art. However, none of them seemed to rub off on him, those trends, if you will. He stuck with a style that I think is kind of classic and traditional, and Consequently, it's it's very clean. It's without 
editorial comment in terms of the style. It, it's presented uh, very clearly, I think, for his audience to see. And, and again, it, it doesn't matter what the um, medium is. Um, that that tendency on Joe's part to clearly communicate is consistent throughout his work. What was the first thing that caught your eye about his work? What started it all? The, the first pieces of his that I saw were what I would call his ephemeral work, and particularly um, two pieces that he did, one about the American cowboy and the second one about Indians of North America. And they're posters in format, and they are actually visual histories, if you will, of both of those subject matters, and they're full of um, content in terms of telling the story of those two subject matters. And those were the first pieces that I saw, and eventually I would see more of his work, and then the, the next hook, if you will, was seeing a variety of mediums that he was working in and a variety of approaches to different subject matter or sometimes even the same subject matter but depicting it in different ways and uh, my background is that of an artist and an art instructor and so consequently I you know seeing his work was just became more and more intriguing it was just a little bit mind-boggling that all of this work of such a varied nature was being created by the same person and then eventually um, the the deepest hook that was set in me if you will was when I saw his watercolors of Hopi Katsina figures and I had a pre-existing interest in Hopi cultural material um, having grown up with it, and when I saw his watercolors, I was just knocked out. They're just—they were so elegant and exquisite and detailed uh, that I just realized this is a person who had a soul that I completely appreciate and am totally intrigued by, um, and consequently wanted to continue to learn more about. Um, which, uh, as I have done for again. 25 years now so those posters that started it all you said they were a visual history in what way well the subject matter um, of both of them is is intended to depict as much information as possible in a um, two-dimensional relatively small area about you know 24 maybe by 36 inches and the Cowboy poster traces the history of horsemen. Uh, it, it depicts the different um, tack, uh, different saddles, um, different actions or movements that um, cowboys uh, would take during rodeos or, or actually out while working on the range. Uh, and then the same thing with the uh, Indians of North America. It's full of... Um, of portraits of different um, indigenous people um, based on the, where they lived, based on their tribes, uh, based on their cultural uh, material, their their saddles, um, their artwork, their pottery, um, basket making. So it's just a variety of different um, 
sort of celebrations, if you will, of both of those subject matters in terms of bringing the visual component of their worlds to the attention of the public. So uh, why isn't he a little better known today? (laughs) Well, that's that's a great question. And um, I've been peddling as fast as I can for the last 25 years to bring his work to the attention of the public. Um, it's a curious, it's a curious question, and and I don't have a specific answer um, because, curi- interestingly enough, throughout his life he did get a certain amount of attention. There's, I have uh, shelves full of reference material and, and articles written about him back when, um, you know, when he was first starting out seriously as an artist. He was interviewed. There were n- newspaper articles written about him. But he still never rose to the notoriety of Frederick Remington or Charlie Russell, uh, who were uh, other very well-known Western artists. And, you know, people have speculated that one of the reasons maybe that Joe did such a variety of different um, artwork over the course of his career, so and traditionally most artists either paint or they sculpt um, and occasionally some people will do both but very very few um, work in the variety of mediums that Joe did and so I think that that could be a possibility the the other component that you know is interesting is that in many ways he did not self-promote he was so busy working and raising a family and making sure they had clothes on their backs and food on the table that he, he his time was very consumed with actually doing his artwork. And he's one of the few artists or creative souls who had no other source of income other than through his artwork. And anybody that's studied art knows how rare that is and really how difficult it is to achieve that. So consequently, I think a lot of his focus was always on, you know, the the work at hand and where was the next project or commission coming from and, and so that he didn't really, you know, take the time to self-promote. So I think all of those things, you know, have, you know, some aspect of them that contribute to the answer to the question. And um, But again, something like this podcast with A Books is a perfect opportunity to get the word out about him and bring his achievements to the attention of the public, uh, as was the webinar that you listened to last week. So working in stone and then working in watercolors and then working in photography, these are all really different mediums. How, how did he become so accomplished in each one? Was he self-trained? To a certain extent, yes, he was self-trained. Um, he did, in fact, go to art school uh, when he finished uh, grade school. And his father was also a classical sculptor, and I know he spent you know, hours and, and days working with his father, and I believe probably was the most important influence on him art-wise. Uh, his brother, who was two years older than him, was also what I would call a classical painter. In fact, he did the presidential portrait of, of President Harding that's in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So they, they certainly art was in the family. 
um, he did go to art school, and so he had he had that classical training, and it goes along with the saying about that you know you have to understand the basics before you can um, elaborate on them or, or develop them, and he clearly did that. Uh, we have wonderful evidence of his work when he was uh, not only a child but then also a young adult, uh, and so you can see you know the quality of his work and and he was you know i think he approached his art in such a manner that if a if a commission came his way and he wasn't totally sure how to go about doing it he would just teach himself um whatever that technique happened to be in order to accomplish the project and and again the need to generate income and and to have a steady flow of of funds coming into for the family uh, motivated him to accept virtually every commission that came his way, whether he thought initially it was in his wheelhouse of, of um, you know, sculpting background, or if it was something he needed to figure out um, how to do differently, and um, and he did that. He he was inquisitive. He was capable, and so every time something came along, he he said yes and and figured it out and it doesn't mean that there weren't some commissions that fell through but i don't think they ever fell through because of his lack of ability to pull them off i think it usually had to do with with a city or a committee changing their mind and saying oh no we're not actually going to do this but it didn't have anything to do with joe's ability to produce you know the proposed art did he have a preferred medium well, I would say sculpting was, um, if you were to ask him, I think that's what the answer would be. And when it came to sculpting, that would be either initially working with clay or with plaster and then having his work then cast uh, initially in concrete or in bronze, uh, depending on what the project was. But he he worked very closely with his father uh, during the last years of his father's life and while Joe was growing up and he even went so far as to say that once his father passed away he had to do Joe had to do some soul searching about what his future would hold and what was most important to him at that time had been his time with his father and at his side and learning his sculpting craft and that that's the way he was going to um, continue throughout the rest of his career. And it's it's not to say he didn't do other work for over the rest of his years, but sculpting, I think, meant the most to him uh, whenever he had had those opportunities. So it was interesting to learn that he uh, spent time uh, among Native Americans and learned their languages. He must have been... Uh, a rarity at that time. I definitely agree with you. Um, and it, it wasn't so much that there weren't um, other um, people visiting the Hopi and the Navajo at the time, because there were there, there weren't a lot, but there were some, and some of the Hopi ceremonies were open to the public, and and so people attended those, you know, to view them, but. Few people, you know, and I'm not sure if I know of any other examples, were so um, 
motivated to understand the cultures that they actually lived with the Hopi, um, as Joe did. And he spent almost three years living with the Hopi. He, as you mentioned, he learned their language. He was actually invited to sit in and, and participate in ceremonies, which is really unprecedented for an outsider. And I, again, I think it's all because he went there with an open heart and a willingness to just learn and understand the cultures. And they, they understood that about him. Uh, he was not there to exploit them in any way at all. He was there because he was interested and, and he wanted to understand them and their culture as best he could. And it, it worked. I mean, it, it was, he, he, after almost the three years, he wrote home and he said, if I don't leave today, I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. So it kind of gives you an idea of how endeared he was to, to the Hopi and Navajo and how welcome he was by them to be with, with them. So did he go back in his later life? Uh, interestingly, he did not, to the best of my knowledge. However, his son, um, Joe Jr., did spend time uh, in Arizona later on. And um, while Joe Morrow was there back in the early part of the 1900s, he got to know the Hubble family. And the Hubble family was very instrumental in in developing and, and maintaining the trading post system. And... Joe got to know them, and then consequently his son, Joe Jr., got to know the uh, children of that family as well. So he would go visit them. Oftentimes it was to bring artwork that his dad had created, like the posters of the Indians of North America, and then Joey would sell them to the Hubbles, and then the Hubbles would turn around and sell them at their trading posts. So, um, But again, it was... Um, a very, uh, it was a very comfortable and familiar relationship. They they were good friends and heartbroken when the elder Hubble died and wrote very sympathetic uh, letters to the family. And so it was a close relationship. And um, but as far as spending any more time with the Hopi or Navajo, um, I don't have any indication that that was true. Okay. Um, can we speak about the maps? They yeah. are uh, the maps that he designed. They have a distinctive style. They're very colorful, cartoon-like. Um, how did he come to be working in the the map business? Well, as a child in grade school or grammar school, map making was part of the curriculum, and this goes back to the late eighteen hundreds. It was no different than math or arithmetic or English studies, um, map making was just part of the curriculum. So that was his first um, connection, I think, with that. And then when he um, had, um, he, he'd moved back to California, he'd spent time in the San Francisco Bay Area and then moved down to the Monterey Peninsula where he lived for the rest of his life. And he ended up doing end papers in a book that was published that was the end papers were a map of Monterey Peninsula and then he was commissioned by um, Sam Morris who he knew initially through the Bohemian Club uh, in San Francisco 
to do a couple of maps of the Monterey Peninsula, and consequently Joe also did his first map of California at that time. So we're talking about the uh, late 1920s. And I think they it was a subject matter that was intriguing to Joe. The maps fall into the category of what are called pictorial maps, and they are done in a very lighthearted manner, but at the same time they're full of factual information. And so Joe and and Joe and his son Joey, who kind of became his business manager, realized that there was a commercial component to these, and that if they if Joe would drew, draw one, then Joey would have it printed, and then Joey would take it out on the road and sell it, and, and so it became it became a fairly dependable source of income for the family, and in fact helped get them through the depression years, where for some reason, I, I think because the attractiveness of the maps, but people were still willing to pay 50 cents to buy one, uh, even though, you know, money was short and times were difficult for people, but they were attractive enough and available so that it, it created an income source for the family. And it, it also gave Joe a chance to depict the history of this of the particular map and the area that he was drawing, and he was an incredible student of history. He loved history, particularly California history, and so most of his maps focus on California, or I would say at least half of them do, and the different places in California, Yosemite and San Diego, Los Angeles, uh, Santa Catalina Island, which was a map that went unfinished. Um, so it was it was a way for him to um, express his interest in history and at the same time you know, generate some income for the family. So pictorial maps today are commonplace. Um, you can get them everywhere, but were the maps that he was doing, were they innovative for the time? Well, I think they were yes and no. I, they, there were other people creating uh, pictorial maps at the time. And it's not real clear who influenced who, um, which is an intriguing question, and I'm not sure how much more research there is to do to try to figure it out. But I do have a feel. It, it, pictorial maps, I think it's fair to say, go back to England, and, and right at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, and so Joe was aware of them. I mean, he had to be. I don't think he created these out of a vacuum. But it, it was the timing is such that there were several people working around that same time. And what stands out, though, about Joe's is how good he was at it. And it goes back to his days as an illustrator. He had a an incredible graphic sense when it came to illustrations and, and visuals. And so he was able to bring that to it, and he brought a style to it that stands out as being his. So it's pretty clear that if you put up several, uh, several pictorial maps from that same time period, you would be able to distinguish which one was Joe's and which was uh, Ruth Taylor White's, for example. Um, and it, just because each of them, and it, it, that wasn't unique to Joe, all of those artists at the time had a unique style. And I think that uh, 
um, that was, I'm sure, intentional. It also had to do with each of their abilities, but none of them wanted to be considered <laughs> someone who was plagiarizing somebody else's work, even though oftentimes the subject matter was similar, but the, the style was always different and identifiable. Okay. Now, he also uh, wrote and illustrated books. Can you tell us a little bit about what he did in, in that medium? Well, it was something he did from the time he was first employed. So it started, as we mentioned, uh, when he was an illustrator and a cartoonist for the Boston Herald, and that was back in the 1800s, late 1800s. And one of the things that was true at that point were that book, book publishers were, would republish a book. For example, Animals of Aesop. And um, each time they republished it, they would look for a new illustrator just to give it a fresh look and to hopefully generate new sales. And they hired, the Dana Estes and company hired Joe as an illustrator um, during those years as well. So he illustrated a number of books. Sometimes he would adapt the stories or edit the stories as well as, like, as with um, Hans Andersen's fairy tales. Um, so that that was kind of the beginning of his writing. Uh, however, he actually first wrote stories as a young boy. And one of the wonderful things about the archive is that his mother and then his wife saved all of that material. So I have stories that he wrote and illustrated when he was, you know, seven and eight years old. And then he continued um, throughout his career to write. And again, it was oftentimes it was to suit a specific need uh, or an idea. For example, he wrote a, log, a book called The Log of the Spanish Main, and it was a blank journal with prompts in it for passengers on board a cruise ship so that they each and eventually they were the cruise line bought the books the inventory books and distributed them to their passengers and so Joe very you know creatively um, illustrated the book um, you know gave prompts for writing for example you know list the day's activities or describe the people that you met on board and uh, so that that was um, a very successful project for them and it was, and then Joe also wrote about various pirates, as it was, you know, it had sort of a theme of the Spanish Main with it, and so he wrote about pirates um, in that book. And then, if, and he kind of continually through his career wrote stories that he hoped could be turned into books. And most of the time, they were not. Uh, he couldn't. He couldn't find a publisher that was interested. And in, he would write the first couple of chapters. He would propose illustrations. He would ship them off to to publishers and keep his fingers crossed. And um, as I said, most of the time, uh, they did not end up being um, purchased, or so consequently, they weren't published. And there was a couple of exceptions to that, and they, they were later in his life. He he did write and publish, or have published, trail, a book called Trail Dust and Saddle Leather, which was very near the end of his life. It was published in 1946, and he died the following year. But it was a it was a heartfelt look at the American cowboy, 
and that book is it's a wonderful book to read because it's very reader friendly it's written in a very comfortable style yet it's full of factual information and of course joe did the illustrations as well and all based on his first-hand knowledge of the subject matter and then that book was intended to be the first of three that traced the story of of horsemen um, throughout the western world uh, his second book, Californios, was uh, he just finished it and illustrated it right before he died, and so it was left to his son to see to its publication, which also happened in 1949. And then the third book in the proposed trilogy was about the gauchos of South America, which was heartfelt to Joe in terms of the time that they had lived in Uruguay and his father had had studied the gauchos and so it was the idea was that that would have been the third book um, however that one was never finished and only a couple of illustrations were ever ever done for that but it, those books are what's interesting about them is that they are no longer in print however they are accessible on a books uh, but they're they're still significant books to this day in terms of the subject matter, and people use them for research purposes all the time, and the illustrations are oftentimes, um, there are requests to use those as illustrations because they speak so clearly and, and so specifically about the subject matter. So today, where could I go to see his art? Well, most of his art is in private collections, there is a, a good uh, display of his work in Monterey, California, at the Monterey um, uh, History and Art Association. However, it's generally speaking, it's hard to see it only because of limited hours. And there is also a wonderful collection that's privately held in Pacific Grove, California, and that can be found at the Trotter Galleries. They have work there. That's where the majority of the original work is. There is also some work to see at their gallery in Carmel, California. But that's probably the single best place for the public to go to see his work is at their gallery in Pacific Grove. And it, it's just absolutely an outstanding collection. Um, I tell people to allow at least an hour and you know, it usually takes more because there's so much to see. And their gallery in collection is, is not just limited to Joe Moore. It's, it's a wonderful, um, almost museum full of work by other California artists. So it's, a, it's well worth a stop for the people that are interested in art. So I think those, those two places are probably the best in terms of their accessibility to the public. Okay. Uh, last question, Peter. What book or books are you currently reading? I read a mystery about once every 10 years, and it happened to be about the um, West Texas. And before COVID, we thought we were going to be going through West Texas on our way to Austin to see our son, and that didn't work out. And finally, my pile got down to the point where um, that was the last book on the pile. So <laughs> reading it, even though we're not going to be driving through that area right now. Right. Uh, many thanks to Peter Hiller,
who is the collection creator for the Joe Mora Trust and the author of The Life and Times of Joe Mora, Iconic Artist of the American West. And if I may just add one more item, uh, first of all, I am honored to be um, doing this podcast with you, and I have bought numerous books through A Books. And I just thought your listeners might be interested to know that if they're looking for Joe Mora books at A Books, they should look under Joseph Jacinto Mora, they should look under J.J. Mora, and they should look under Joe Mora, J.O. Mora, because there's, uh, there's books under all three of those names that he used in different times of his life, and there's, um, there's books in one listing that might not be in another, so it's worth going through all three of those. Thank you. Yeah, I've been, I've been uh, looking at the books and also the maps, um, and the maps jump out, right? They, on the internet, something as colorful as that is very easy to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, uh, your website is um, a great resource, I think. Um, so you oh, can learn, you. Yeah. The more, learn more about Mora at the joemoratrust.com. So that's joe, J-O, Mora, M-O-R-A, trust.com. Uh, and I, I encourage everyone to go there and take a look. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast. And we'll see you all again soon.